Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Newton podcast. This podcast seeks to share the truth of God's Word through the sermons and other teachings of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Newton, Kansas. We hope these episodes will be a blessing to you and your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. The sermon title this morning is Provoked, and there is both a, a positive and a negative sense that we're going to see this morning when it comes to that word provoked. Usually we use that word in, in the more negative sense, like they provoked me in a negative way. And we're going to see that this morning, but we're also going to see it in the positive sense, that we should seek to provoke someone in, in a positive manner. Uh, Hebrews uses it in that way, provoke one another to love and good works. So we're going to see that in the second half of the sermon this morning. But first, we're going to see Paul provoked in a negative way. And the reason for that is, is the same reason that we have today, that there are idols everywhere around us. There are idols everywhere. There are people all around us everywhere we go that whether they realize it or not are worshiping idols. They may not come out and say it. They might not even consciously know that they're worshiping this thing or that thing as an idol because they likely think that what they're doing is good, it's right, it's okay, it's going to make my life better, and so that's why they're doing it. But they're, they're doing something that is atrocious in the eyes of God and, and we can see it everywhere around us. We are surrounded by idols. Idols such as the self, that is one of the biggest ones we see today. The self, that my truth is what I make it, my identity is whatever I want it to be, and you can't tell me any different. We can even see it in, in physical fitness, the idol of being in shape and, and having a body that can do whatever I want it to do because I've trained it to do it. We can see it in physical beauty, the idol of physical beauty that on, all over social media, and I know I'm speaking to a, a group that may not be on social media that much, but it's out there where that is all that is on there is this hair care line, this makeup line, look at how beautiful that person looks, look how handsome this guy is. It's all about physical beauty and we're worshiping this physical form. There's idols such as money and wealth. That's another huge one in the world we live in. The idea that if I can just serve money and wealth, that it will in turn reward me. That if I can just be financially free, I'll be content. That if I'm not going to have to worry about how I'm going to pay my bills, that if I can have anything that I want, then I'll finally be happy. I'll be content. If I can just have enough to buy this thing, this car, this house, this phone, this watch, whatever it is, then I will be fulfilled. It's an idol. These get-rich-quick ideas are everywhere out there, and people follow them because they are worshiping what they think they're going to get from it. Money, wealth, security. There's the idol of knowledge all around us as well. Think about Google for a minute. You can Google anything you want to, and you can learn about anything you want to in a matter of seconds. It's it's out there. 
If you want to know about the square root of 163 million and 500, I don't know what that is, but you could Google it right now and you'd know. Why do you need to know that? I don't know. But then you could say, I know what the square root of whatever number I just said is. And we're just so obsessed with being so smart and knowing all of these things. And we Google it and we can find it in seconds. There's also the knowledge of social media that's out there. There's 24-7 news cycles. What's going on in the world? I need to know every detail about everything that's going on, not only here in Newton and in Harvey County, but across the world in a place that I'll never go. I need to know what's happening there. For what reason, I'm not sure, but I need to know it so if someone asks me about it, I can look smart. I, sure, I know what, what's going on in the government system of a, a country that I can't even pronounce because I read the news. I watched the news. i got to know the newest trend, the newest hack. What, how can I use this thing that was de- not designed to be used in this way, but I can do it and I can show everybody else how to do it, and then again, they're going to think I'm pretty smart that I came up with that. People are so consumed today in worshiping knowledge and and looking so smart. They're consuming bits of information everywhere they go for that purpose. So they can look smart. So they can be the smartest person in the room when they walk into it. They worship the idol of power as well. Like that's... If you don't think that's an idol in America, then you might need to open your eyes a little bit more. Our political system is just set up to worship it. It's set up to worship the political system so that whoever is in power gets what they want. That's all it is. It's power. It's an idol. We have this idol of pleasure here too. We can do whatever makes us happy. We can forget about the consequences because for that fleeting moment, I get everything that I think I'm going to get. I don't care about the shame or, or whatever comes after or the guilt or, or the cost that it got me to get that. It doesn't matter because I want that thing. I want the pleasure. We worship the rich and famous. They are our idols. We even use it in the language we talk about. We ask a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I want to be an NFL player. My idol is Patrick Mahomes. Your what? Your idol is Patrick Mahomes? We don't even realize we're saying it. It's just so common in our culture, in our language, that we we will openly say it not knowing what we're saying. My idol is, is this model, is this actor, is this athlete, is this musician, is this politician, is this businessman or this businesswoman who got there by working hard and pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. I want to be like that person. They're my idol. Idols are everywhere around us. We live in a nation of idols and idolaters. And I don't say that, and I'm not preaching this sermon just to knock everybody out there down. That's not the reason that I'm doing it. I'm not saying, well, look at them. Let's judge them. Let's point our fingers at them. Look how bad they are. Instead, I want us to realize it and not just go about our day-to-day life not really understanding what's happening. Because if that's the reality, that we live in a nation of idols and idolaters, we We should be provoked because of that. We ought to be grieved by that reality, church. 
It ought to grieve us that that's where we live. We ought to even be angered, not angered in the sense of, I'm just so mad at that person, but angered by the reality because they're robbing from God what He is owed. Worship. Love. Adherence to what He says. We're jealous for God, and so we're provoked in that way. We grieve by that. We're angered by that. Because they're taking from God what He alone deserves and giving it to people or things that don't deserve it, that can't bear the weight of it. So we should be provoked and grieved. So much so that we can't stay silent about it any longer. But instead, we get up, we go out, as we see Paul does here in our text. So instead of being provoked to anger and grief and we just withdraw, we instead we go. We don't seclude ourselves because that's, that's often the tendency of the church is we want to shelter ourselves, we want to build walls around us, we don't want to be in anything or look like we're in anything that the world is doing, but instead we ought to be provoked and grieved and angered to go out, not withdraw, We go out for the purpose of showing the world, those people that are worshiping idols, whether they realize it or not, show them the worthlessness of it and and introduce them to the one they are searching for in those wrong places. The one that they need to know, the one that they need to worship, the one that they need to love, because He in turn loved them first. We go, we're provoked to go. That's what Paul does here. He's going to do that very thing here in Athens, in a place that is full of idols. He's going to be provoked to preach the gospel. That's our first point. Provoked to preach. That's what Paul is. That's what we ought to be. So read with me verses 16 to 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Here, Paul is in Athens... He's waiting, if you remember. He was escorted out of Berea. He's waiting on Timothy and Silas to join him there in Athens so they can continue on with the mission. Continue on going from town to town, sharing the gospel, setting up churches. But while he's waiting there in Athens, he became deeply distressed. And why? Because he looked out and he saw that the city was full of idols. People serving these idols, worshiping these idols, taking care of these idols. And he was distressed by that. He was provoked by the idolatry he saw all around him. 
But again, he didn't get provoked and think, man, that's so terrible, I need to leave here, or I just need to stay by myself. He was provoked to get up and say something, to get up and go, go into the synagogue, go into the marketplace, to reason with whoever was there at the time. It didn't matter to Paul who was there. He, as long as someone was there, he was going to share the gospel with them. Because he saw their idolatry and he needed to redirect them from the idols to the one who is worthy of worship, to the one who is worthy of their life. And that's not really new for Paul. This was his typical plan. He would go to a new place and he would do that very thing. But this time was different. Again, he was just supposed to be sitting there waiting. He was by himself. He was supposed to wait for Silas and Timothy. But he found himself not being able to do that. He could not just sit around while so many people all around him were engaging in idol worship. He could not help himself. He was so distressed, so angered because God was being robbed of that which he alone deserved. So he went out and he engaged those different groups of people in the city who were worshiping those idols. And he told them, specifically we see, he was telling them about Jesus and the resurrection. That there was this man named Jesus who is the Messiah, who died for their sins, and who was raised again to life. He went out and engaged them, telling them about Jesus. And those different groups of people had differing thoughts about Paul and his message. Some people thought he was a preacher of foreign deities, which is not really true because the deity is not foreign. He's the only one there is, the God of everything that created everything, and he'll get to that. Some people thought he was an ignorant show-off. Have you ever been accused of being that as a Christian? He's an ignorant show-off. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were the ones who thought of him in that way. But others still were intrigued. They wanted to hear more, but not really for the right reason. Instead, they just spent all their time on nothing else but learning and telling something new. They, are, they were the ones that worshipped that idea of knowledge. We just want to know everything we can know. We just want the new thing. What's new? What don't I know yet that you can tell me so that I say I can know it? So Paul went out. He engaged these different types of people, these different groups of people. And as he went out, they eventually were like, hey, we need you to come with us. They took him to the Areopagus. This is Mars Hill, if you will. This is what it's also called, Mars Hill. To speak more about this God he proclaimed that raised this Jesus from the dead. And it was there at the Areopagus that Paul would have had before him all those different kinds of people, those different idol worshipers. There were those Epicurean philosophers and they believed that the cosmos, the universe, was here by accident. It was just a chance that it's here. They believed that people should lead tranquil and quiet lives, that they should be free of passions and emotions. They should just kind of glide along. Live at peace with everybody. Don't get too upset about anything. Don't get too happy about anything. Just kind of stay there in the middle. And they didn't necessarily deny the existence of gods, but they believed that they were totally unconcerned with humanity. 
that they were just removed from it, that humanity was going on by itself and that they never intervened because they didn't care about humanity. They also believed there was no life after death. Once people die, their bodies just go back to being a part of that material world that was here by chance. There was also the Stoic philosophers that he would have encountered, that he would have been preaching to, and they believed that humans ought to live by reason alone. As long as it's reasonable, that's fine. They ought to live a virtuous life, to do right, to do good things, but not really for a higher purpose, just because that's the best way to live. Just do right. They did believe that there was a divine being and that that being was all around them and in everything in sort of a mystical way. Like if they were here today, they would think that the church building was a part of God, that God was in the building itself, the structure, that He was all around them in the air. Now we know that's true in a sense. God is omnipresent, but God is not the building But that's what they would have believed. There was also those who were extremely religious in every respect, as Paul says in the next verse, who made, who served, who worshipped all of these physical idols in the city. Now I say all of that, not just so that you know about these people, but because Paul is going to use what those people believed to then preach to these people. He had to know a little bit about them and what they believe so that he could have a starting point with how do I get from what they know, what they think, what they believe to introduce them to Jesus, to the the only true God and why they ought to believe in Him and follow Him. That's what he's going to do. And church, there are people all around us They're just like this city that worship idols. Paul was provoked to say something, to get up, to preach the truth to those people. And the reality is, we ought to get up and go preach to these people around us. They're out there. They're all around us. We live among a people in Newton, Kansas, who are fully entwined and entangled with idolatrous worship just like the people in Athens. Whether they're the philosopher types that that love to just sit around and discuss things going on in the world to give their own thoughts and opinions and ideas about it, but also don't get too invested, don't get too passionate about it, because we don't want to do that. We don't want to go that far. We aren't really that committed. We just want to kind of look like we're that committed. We're going to talk about it. We're going to discuss it. In my mind, I just picture those older gentlemen that are at the coffee shop every day or the, the little restaurant and they just, every morning, they're going to be there drinking their coffee, talking about the world, but never do anything about it. That's those kind of people. They seek to live a quiet life. That They want to live by reason above all else. They do good because they feel like they ought to. It makes them feel good about themselves. They don't really believe in life or death or not really to the extent that they, care, that they change the way they live. They may or may not believe in a God or gods. That's all around us. It's not foreign to us. It just looks a little different than it did there. We have also the ultra-religious people today. Those that 
go to a church or a mosque or a synagogue or a temple that seek to strictly adhere to the rules and customs of their religion in order to earn favor from the God they're seeking to worship, that's around us. But that's not the only kind of religious people there are here today in our midst, in our society, in our town. For example, there are many religious people in America that worship multiple times a week, but rarely, if ever, step foot in a church. There are those people that worship football. If you don't believe me that people worship football, look at their life. They probably wouldn't say they worship football, but their life would definitely say otherwise. We even use this in the language, just like we say, he's my idol or she's my idol. People will say, I religiously watch, or I religiously do so. They'll use that language. I religiously do that. Or people will say, well, I don't religiously do it. But it's the whole idea of they are worshiping. They religiously watch it Monday night, Thursday night, Saturday morning if they like college football, and all day Sunday. And then they do it again Monday, Thursday, Wednesday, or Friday even if they go to the local sports. But they do it every week. And in between game days, it's all they can talk about. It's all they talk about. Now, I love fantasy football, but I know people that all they talk about outside of work is fantasy football. Who did you draft? Who are you playing this week? What do you think about this guy versus this defense? What do you think about this defense versus this guy? It's all they talk about. They're consumed by it. They worship football whether they say they do or not. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not bashing football. I love football. I enjoy watching football. I even enjoy playing fantasy football. But if all of my time and all of their time is focused on watching it, talking about it, thinking about it, that's an idol. That's what it is. And it's, it's an idol that millions of Americans fall into every year at this time. The same type of worship can happen not just with sports like football, but also with all of those things I mentioned at the beginning. Self, money, knowledge, power, politics, pleasure, famous people. There are millions and millions of people in America and billions all over the world who are worshiping something other than the one they ought to worship. And that should provoke us to preach, to preach the gospel, to show them that's not worth your life. What can football give you? A little bit of joy, and then if, I'm sorry, Susan and Ron and Chance, if you're a Cowboys fan, for all of my life, a lot of pain and heartbreak. That's what it gives you. It's not worth worshiping. So we prov we're provoked to preach. But then as we preach, the second point, we preach with a purpose. We preach to provoke. We were provoked in a negative sense, but we go out and we preach to provoke in a positive sense. We don't want to anger them. 
They may get angry anyway, but we're provoking them to respond to Jesus in a positive way. That's our goal as we go and preach. That was Paul's goal. It's important to see that. And again, in Paul's preaching, he uses common ground between the people and the truth of God in order to provoke them to see the full truth, to provoke them to respond to the truth with repentance. So we provoke people, we preach to provoke people. So read with me verses 22 to 31. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and the earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring then, we should think that the divine nature is, we should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. First, Paul preaches to provoke, and he wants to provoke people to see the truth. To see the truth in a way that they would understand. Paul, now in the Areopagus, on Mars Hill, stands and begins to preach, and he acknowledges their religiosity. They're indeed religious. They're visibly religious. And he points that out. He points out their idols, their objects of worship. And then he points to the altar they made to the unknown God. And it's that altar that he uses to launch into showing them the truth. He took what they already know and is going to move them to what they don't know but need to know. He says the altar to the unknown God that they worship, they do so in ignorance, but they don't need to do it in ignorance anymore. I'll tell you about the God you need to know about. Paul declares to them that the unknown God is actually not unknowable, but is instead deeply knowable. And that's what he does. He introduces them to the knowable God. He uses, he says he is the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of the heavens and earth. He says he does not dwell in dwell or live in things made by human hands. These idols that you've made, God doesn't dwell in them. God is not them. He's not served by, nor does he need anything from you. Again, these people would bring food to these idols. They would 
let them rest for, from time to time because they, they thought that God indwelled the idol. And so Paul's saying, He's not served by you. He doesn't need anything from you. Instead, you need everything from Him because He is the one who gives life and breath and everything there is. And from one man, he says, every nationality has come. He's appointed their times and their boundaries, and he did this for the purpose of you seeking him, so that you may reach out and that you may find him, because he's not far from each of us. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said correctly that we're his offspring. Again, he's using what they know and taking it and showing them this is the ultimate truth. He continues, since we are his offspring, we must not think the divine nature is like the stuff you make your idols of, gold, silver, stone, things made by human hands and imagination. This God has previously overlooked the times of ignorance and is now calling all people to repent. Because he set a day where he's going to return and he's going to send his man to judge the earth. That man is Jesus. And it was proven by the fact that he was raised from the dead. There's his justification. There's his proof. Again, do you see what Paul is doing here? He's using what they already think or know to then point them to and provoke them to see the truth. He showed the Epicureans who thought of God as distant and unconcerned with humanity the truth that there is a God and He is intimately involved and deeply concerned with humanity. They think He's out there, they're out there, they don't care. But Paul says there is one out there, but He does care. He is concerned. He is working. In fact... Humanity was not an accident and neither was the cosmos. That God who is deeply and intimately concerned with humanity is the one who created the world and everything in it. And you, you were made in His image. He's organized in the time and space and place that every human would live so that they may seek Him and reach out and find Him. He's intimately concerned. He's taking what they believe and what they think and showing them, you, you're not right here. This is the truth. He showed the Stoics who thought that they needed to live a virtuous life that they were right. You ought to live a virtuous life. But the reason you're living a virtuous life is not what you think. They shouldn't live a virtuous life merely because that's the reasonable thing to do. They should live a virtuous life because there is a God who is going to judge the world in righteousness. You want to live a virtuous life because you fear that God. Because you want to obey that God. Not just because it's a reasonable thing to do. He showed the Stoics that and he showed the religious that their instinct to worship was right. But the objects of their worship were utterly wrong. That instinct that every human has, whether they admit it or not, that to worship something or someone is right, just more often than not, the place they put that worship is wrong. And so he shows them, this is where your worship's been focused. 
the things that you've made, but it should be instead focused on the one who's made you. That's who your worship ought to be for. The one in whom you live and move and have your being. He's provoking them to see the truth. But he didn't stop there at just provoking them to see the truth. He wants them to respond to the truth. I think we often get kind of muddied here in our evangelism. Is, is a lot of times, we, if we are willing, we'll share about Jesus and we'll say, this is who we follow. This is who we want to obey. And we might even say, you know, you should too. But we don't go as far as we need to go in, in being more direct about that. We just kind of leave it ambiguous. There's a God. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. I follow him. You should probably follow him too. And we just kind of leave it there. That's a good start. But it's not where you need to end. Paul preached to provoke the people to respond to the truth. He didn't leave any question about it. At the end of Paul's preaching, he reveals that there is a God, this God he's been preaching about, has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he commands all people to respond, to repent, so they escape judgment, the judgment that's to come. God has commanded it, and Paul is making sure they know God has commanded it. It's not a a debatable issue. Repent. Paul is very clear. He's not merely preaching so that they know the truth, but they respond to the truth and respond with repentance. And repentance naturally involves belief in a new way of living. To truly repent, you actually believe what's being preached and you respond in a new way of life. It's not just, well, I think that's true, but I'm going to keep going about my life the way I want. It's, I know that's true, and because of that, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do what God is commanding me to do. That's repentance. That's what Paul is calling them to do here. For them to truly repent then would mean that they would turn away from their old way of living, their old beliefs towards believing in Jesus and living for Him, the one who died and rose again. They're no longer to worship idols. Those idols in the city of Athens are not for them anymore. They instead are to worship the true God who created them, who loves them, who sent His Son to die for them. So church, as we are provoked to preach which we ought to be provoked to preach. We, prov- we preach then to provoke. Provoke people to see the truth and to respond to the truth with repentance. And the best way we can do that is to start where they're at. We need to know them a little bit. To use what they already believe and to show them either they're missing the truth or where they need to go a little deeper with what they're doing. So here are three examples of how we could do just that. Two are fairly serious. One is not very serious. But it's, it'll be good. If you come across a person who cares deeply about other people and you want to preach to them, 
then you can begin to go a little deeper with them as to why they care about people and why that's a good thing. So if they care deeply about other people, you could just say, why do you care deeply about other people? If they don't believe in God, why do you care about that person across the street? Why do you care about the elderly? Why do you care about the children? And they might say, well, I think they have value and worth, which is right and good. That's great. They're a little closer than maybe you even thought. But then you respond with, I, I agree with that. I agree they have value and worth. But it's not just because you think they do. It's because they were created by God and in His image that they have value and worth. And that same God thinks that you are worth it, that He sent His Son to die for you and to rise again so that you would believe in Him and repent and follow. So you take where they're already at. They really care about people, but then you press them a little deeper. Why do you care about people? Well, because they're people? I don't know. But then you say, because God created that person. Because they bear His image. And do you know what? He created you. And He cares about you. And He loved you enough to send His Son for you. So you take where they're at and you go further and you show them and then you, res- then you get them to the point where they not only see the truth, but then you get them to, say, to see the truth that they need to repent. You were living this way, which you might have had some good deeds, but those good deeds don't do you any good if you don't believe in Jesus. Repent of your way of life, of living for yourself, doing what you thought was right, what you want to do, and live for Jesus and what He said is right and what He says you ought to do. You make it clear. You live this way. That's no more. Now you live this way. Another example. You come across a person who fights for justice, for, the wrongs, for, for wrongs to be punished. Well, you could ask them, why they believe that wrongs ought to be punished. And they may respond that they believe when people break the laws, they ought to have consequences, which is right and true, isn't it? You could push them a little deeper, though, on that and ask, who gets to set the standard for what's right and wrong? Who gets to decide that? And they may give you an answer or maybe kind of puzzled by that. Well, I never really thought about it. To which you could respond that, that I think you're right. That those who do wrong ought to, to receive consequences for the wrongs that they've done. But your foundation for that is on loose footing. You have no ground to say that. But I have ground to say it because I believe that God says what's right and wrong. He sets the standard and He is the righteous one and He Himself also says those who do wrong will be punished. He is a just God. He will not leave any evil deed unpunished. The only question then, you go a little deeper, is who is ultimately going to pay the price for those wrong actions? Because someone's going to pay the price. That's where you introduce them to Jesus. You say, It's either going to be you that pays the price for the wrongs that you've done, or it can be Jesus that pays the price for the wrongs that you've done. Jesus went to the cross for you. In every sin that you did, every wicked thought that you had, He could pay for it on the cross. 
But you have to believe in Him and you have to repent. And you have to turn away from those wicked things and those wrong things. And you have to live for Him. You follow Him. So you can take what they already believe, what they already think, even the good things that they just need a little more solid foundation for and introduce them to God and the need to follow Him and repent. The last one, and again, it's kind of a silly one. You could find yourself talking to a kid who loves chicken nuggets dipped in Chick-fil-A sauce, and you could start off by saying that you too love chicken nuggets dipped in that magical sauce, which is why you're so thankful that God gave you properly working taste buds. Because if you don't like chicken nuggets and you don't like Chick-fil-A sauce, I don't think you can say thank you, God, for these taste buds because they're not working right. Okay, If you have properly working taste buds, you ought to think that those are a good combination. But anyway, you're talking to that kid and it leads you down the road of how God is so good to us that even though we were sinners... Christ died for us. Just like He was good for us in giving us those taste buds, He's also good to us in that every wrong thing that you've ever done or ever will do, He loved you anyway. And He was so good that He sent His Son to die for you. That you didn't have to clean up your life first. He sent Him. He knew what you were going to do. He knew every wicked thing. But He loved you enough to do that. God is so good but now you need to repent. If you want to fully experience that goodness, repent and follow. So you can take even silly things like that. Taste buds, Chick-fil-A nuggets and sauce. And you can get to the gospel. So those are just three examples of how we can preach to provoke like Paul did here in Athens. In reality, there's a million ways we can do that for people to see the truth, to respond to it. And as we do, we'll close with this, we're going to encounter responses like Paul does here. Paul and his preaching are met with three different responses. He first was met with a hard no. I don't want it. Look at verses 32 to 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. Ridiculed him. He was preaching about the good God that created them and everything in it that gave them life and breath that was the reason that they could move. And they said, no, we don't like you. We don't like that supposed God that you're preaching. We think you're ignorant. We don't want anything to do with it. And you might encounter that. That might be a response that you get. Then there's the second one. Let me hear a little bit more about it. I'm curious. I'm not there yet. I'm not saying no. I'm not saying yes. I just want to hear a little bit more if you continue on. Others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So they left Paul's presence. They said, you know, if the time comes and, and you're able, we, you know, tell us a little bit more. We'll come back. You stay around. We, we'd just like to hear a little bit more. We're not really convinced yet. You might get that response. And the third one is the best one of all. Save the best for last, Right? Yes, I believe. That's the third response Paul gets. 34. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Dionysius, Damaris, and others. 
hear the gospel, hear the truth, are provoked to respond to the truth and say yes to Jesus. I want to follow Him. I believe in Him. I don't want to worship those idols anymore. I want to worship the one true God. If we go and we're provoked to preach and we preach to provoke, we will get that response. At some point, someone is going to say yes. And when someone says yes, there might be others behind them that are going to say yes. But none of those will happen if we don't first find ourselves being grieved and provoked to preach by the idolatry and lostness around us. If we're not first moved to move, we're not going to get any of those responses. And no one hears about Jesus. And no one gets to hear about the God that loves them. But if you're provoked to move, then let's faithfully go and engage the world around us as we've been commanded to do by Jesus with the gospel of Jesus Christ and then leave the responses between the hearers and Christ himself. You just go and you just preach and you say, here's the truth, respond to it, repent and believe. And then at that point, it's on them whether they say no, maybe, or yes. You don't need to convince them. You can't convince them. That's God's job. You just have to get the gospel to their ears. So we need to be provoked to preach by the world around us. And then we need to go and preach to provoke the world around us in a positive way. Respond to Jesus in trust and faith and follow Him. Repent and believe. That's what we're called to do. That's what we see Paul do here. Let's go and preach. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this recording of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Newton, Kansas. We hope that the biblical truths presented in this podcast will help you in your walk with Jesus. If you do not have a church home, we invite you to join us here at 1045 on Sunday mornings. You can find the church address as well as other information about our church at ibcnewton.org. Whether you are able to join us here in person or not, we hope that you will find a Bible-believing church near you to join as you continue to follow Jesus.